Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome, or version two. Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebus. This is the Diaspora of Yasharel, and my name is Noel. And I'm actually really excited to be back in my home tonight. I've been gone for four to five months on travel into Missouri, for those of you who've been following my travel schedule. And uh, it feels great. I have a, a baby daughter and back in my home, and a very restful Sabbath. We are in our Roman study, and I assume that everybody, if, if you're listening to this now or on YouTube land or in the podcast, you already went through chapter one. I probably don't need to give an introduction again. Uh, I have a lot of ground to cover tonight, but this is the, the focus of this series is to show that uh, the book of Romans, the entire worldview that Paul had was based upon the Torah. Uh, he had no other scriptures. The only scriptures he had other than the Torah, which is, of course, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, anything that Moshe wrote. Any other scripture that he had would have been what we call the Tanakh, if we're dealing explicitly with canon. And the Tanakh, of course, is just the prophets writing about how we're to keep the first five books. And so when he's talking about Holy Scripture and other things, that's what he's referencing. He's not referring to uh, a canon that doesn't exist yet. There is no other religion. There is no other uh, morality uh, or you know ways to to measure morality, a, a measuring stick. There is no other other than Torah. And so, if we throw, if we gut the Torah, if we remove it, the Book of Romans actually loses its value. And what I hope to show in this series, I'm going to go through verse by verse by verse, is show how uh, it it brings the most clarity. So let's begin. I'm going to start reading from Romans chapter two. Before I do so. Is there anybody here who would like to volunteer to pray uh, to begin this group? I've got all night. I'll sit here and drink my coffee. I'll pray. Sure. Thank you, Andrew. Dear Heavenly Father, Yahweh Elohim, thank you for bringing us together to share fellowship and Thank you for giving us life and shelter and food and all, all the necessities that we need. And thank you for sending your son to sacrifice himself for us. Thank you for the, your Ruach HaKadosh and everything that she does. Um, but we pray to you, Father Yahweh Elohim, and, and we love you. And just want to say thank you for this moment. I mean, thank you, Andrew. Now, last week I just dove right into the the PDF file, and I neglected. I forgot to start reading from the chapter. So we're going to read through uh, Romans chapter two, starting out. And also, of course, I'm going to be re I'm going to be doing a little bit different tonight than most of my studies, as you guys know. If you went through chapter one, I'm reading from a PDF, and one of the reasons being is that. Uh, I, I'm taking the extra time to write this out because so often I have different denominations of Christians, Christianity coming to me and saying that Paul did away from the, with the law. And so we no longer have to be obedient to the Torah, which is the most 
ludicrous, ludicrous, ridiculous thing that can be said full of cognitive dissonance. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable if the, you know, the standard, the definition of righteousness has changed and what is, what it is to be set apart and all these things. And so I'm writing this out so that when people come and tell me these things and they quote from the book of Romans, I say, well, here you go. Here is this document. You can read it for yourself. And that is actually not what he's saying. So starting out here is Romans chapter two. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whatsoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of Elohim is according to truth against them which commit such things. And think you this, O man, that judge them which do such things, and do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of Elohim? Or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of Elohim leads you to repentance? But after your hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of Elohim. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To them who by patient continuance and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Yehudi first and also the other nations, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good to, be, to the Yehudi first and also to the other nations. For there is no respect of persons with Elohim. For as many as have sinned without Torah shall also perish without Torah, and as many as have, have sinned in the Torah shall be judged by the Torah. For not the hearers of the Torah are just before Elohim, but the doers of the Torah shall be justified. For when the other nations which have not the Torah do by nature the things contained in the Torah, these having not the Torah are a Torah unto themselves, which show the work of the Torah written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when Elohim shall judge the secrets of men by Yahuwah HaMashiach according to my Bezorah, behold, you are called a Yehudi, and rest in the Torah. And make your boast of Elohim, and know his will, and approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the Torah, and are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which have the form of knowledge and of the truth in the Torah. You, therefore, which teach another, teach you not yourself? You that preach a man should not steal, do you steal? You that say a man should not break woodlock, do you break woodlock? You that abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? You that make your boast of the Torah, through breaking the Torah, do you dishonor Elohim? For the name of Elohim is blasphemed among the other nations through you, as it is written. For circumcision truly profits if you keep the Torah. But if you be a breaker of the Torah, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. 
Therefore, if the uncircumcision guard the statutes of the Torah, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the Torah, judge you, who with the scripture and circumcision do transgress the Torah? For he is not a Yehudi, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Yehudi, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the Ruach, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of Elohim. All right, that concludes the reading of Romans chapter 2. I'm going to open up this PDF. And let's see, what page are we going to be starting on tonight? We are on page 25. So let's get right to it. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. Romans 2, 1. Who is Paul addressing here? Yahudim, Goyim, or both? I suppose that depends upon whose commentary you're presently reading. And since mine is the current conversation, the conclusion is obvious. It is the Yahudim being targeted here, though clearly he had both groups in mind. Any time that Paul characterizes a morally superior group, it is always to refer to his own people. And why is that exactly? The answer should be obvious by now, because they have the Torah to guide them. If Elohim's instructions were done away with, then the Yahudim would either be moral, um, would be moral equals to the Goyim, or inferior even. That is, if they were now guided by misplaced or outdated laws. Of course, nowhere in here does Paul ever say that the moral standard is outdated. And so you can see why the people of the covenant are without excuse. They were raised in knowledge of Yahuwah's ways and know better, whereas the recent converts primarily only have a heart desiring to do the right thing. Many commentators insist that Goyim are being described, especially since the sin of idolatry was formerly highlighted. All that means is that the Yahudim were also idolaters. A straightforward reading of the Tanakh will easily prove that fact. For starters, all one needs to do is turn to Mount Sinai to encounter the golden calf. Eventually, that sin turns to the idol of jealousy in Ezekiel chapter 8. Paul was even more clever than simple appearances when reminding his readers how idolatry ultimately manifests itself in one's hatred of Elohim. And this is a review a little bit of, I think, chapter 1. Don't even get me started on the temple controllers of Paul's own day. The concerted face upon his own people will be made even more known in the following passages. That being said, the transition between chapters 1 and 2 is appropriate here because Paul is setting up his argument, particularly as it pertains to the Torah's relevance. All that is to follow, at least in this particular chapter, reveals exactly how Paul believes it should be applied. It starts with the self. If we don't understand this concept, we're going to misinterpret what everything that Paul is saying. That is why Paul focused upon a morally superior people. The Torah is improperly enforced if it leads one to a false sense of security, eternally speaking, wherein that same someone might stick their nose up at those without the Torah 
and condemn them without first being led to cleanse those very sins from their lives. Yahushua Messiah said it like this. And why behold you the mote that is in your brother's eye, mote meaning speck, but consider not the beam or the log that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then shall you see clearly to cast out the mount out of your brother's eye. That comes from the Gospel of Matthew 7, 3-5. There is often controversy with the words of Paul when compared to those of Messiah, but I think you will find that the two agree with each other in this particular promise, or premise. Excuse me. What good is the Torah if it leads one only to condemn others? Of course, you don't need the Torah for that. Christianity does the same thing. Many do, though. Ever since recognizing that the Torah is true and that Yahuwah's word is eternal, my journey towards obedience and into a community of so-called Torah observance has been one where I have encountered both types. It's been very speckled and in no short supply because the Torah is Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living and therefore the moral superiority over the denominational doctrines of men, there are those who recognize the treasure before them and treat it internally as the refiner's fire that it is intended to be. Contrarily, others believe they are pleasing Elohim when playing the part of the Torah terrorist and demanding that others hold to it, at least their version of it, while in reality, they are attempting to please man, and they're confusing the two. It seems like Yahushua was saying the external sort of spiritualist was the wrong agitator, or the worst agitator, which goes hand in hand with the crux of Paul's ministry arguments. Very little has changed from then to now, it seems. Verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of Elohim is according to truth against them which commit such things. Romans 2.2. 2. Paul would not introduce a statement with, we know, quote unquote, unless he were certain his readers would agree with him. There is another clue, that the Yahudim are being addressed rather than the Goyim. In doing so, though, he is turning the table upon his agitators, which would also be the Yahudim. Yahushua did that all the time as well. As we have already seen, the truth is always and ever the testimony of Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, as revealed in Holy Scripture. That's all a review of chapter 1. The argument still being set up is that the judgment of Elohim falls upon everyone who conforms to the image of unrighteousness by willfully disobeying the Torah, even if they claim security in their associations. Verse 3. And think you this, O man, that judge them which do such things, and do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of Elohim? Paul was a member of the Parashim, those of the Pharisees, and in fact may have still regarded himself as one, seeing as how the believing Parashim can be found in the book of Acts. We went over that a couple weeks ago in uh, Acts chapter 15 when the, there was a council held in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul was there. Barnabas was there. Yaakov, Kepha was there. And the Pharisees, it called them the believing Pharisees. So they did not re renounce their status or their system as a Pharisee. They believed Messiah. Uh, Yahushua was Messiah. They upheld the Torah and they were still Pharisees. 
And obviously a lot of the, the, the way Paul thinks is very much like one of them. Try to understand his audience then. The Parashim, as well as many variously trained schools of Yahudim, did not believe Yahuwah would judge them quite like he would the Goyim. As you can imagine, such a worldview would create double standards. Even more so, hypocrisy galore. Consider Elohim's judgment of Yashorel according to the Babylonian Talmud, wherein we read the following. All of Israel have a share in the world to come. That's a direct quote from the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, they're quoting apparently from Isaiah 60.12, And your people, all righteous, forever shall inherit the land, the sprout of my plantings, the work of my hands to be glorified. All of Israel have a share. Even those who were executed by Beth Den for their wickedness have a share in the world to come. This comes from Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1. Am I reading too much into this to assume every rebellious soul like Korak would inherit a portion of the world to come? Any such conclusion that all of Yashorel would have a share in the world to come may have been accepted dogma in Paul's own day. Interestingly enough, uh, I encountered uh, someone who felt the same way today. Kind of interesting. So that that worldview still exists. If That if you're a genetic Jew, you're good to go. You've got uh, eternal security. If so, then you can see how controversial such a passage would be. That a Yahudim would be uh, telling other Yahudim judgment was coming for the Goyim and that even they wouldn't escape it. Even more stunning are Yahushua's words when addressing the same crowd which Paul had counted as his fellow officers. So this comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, and it says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahushua said unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Keep reading another couple of verses, and you will see that the conclusion which Yahushua came to was quite contrary to theirs. The Yahudim were not the children of Elohim, despite their supposed lineage, because they did not because they did the deeds of their father, Satan. In actuality, they were concerned with the praises of men rather than Elohim, and in doing so, had done away with the Torah when teaching the doctrines of men. Both are Satan's tactics. The outside of their cups was clean, while in reality, they were dead inside, like whitewashed tombs. Those are Yahushua's words. I have often criticized Paul for the harsh rhetoric towards his agitators, when in fact the cries of Yahushua were far more direct and cutting. It is no wonder why both Yahushua and Paul were hounded down by who? The Parashim. They made enemies with all the wrong people. Verse 4. Or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of Elohim leads you to repentance? We'll be talking about this uh, later tonight, Michael and I, in the Aramaic Targum, Genesis chapter 7 and maybe 8. This is the, the theme of it. When inciting the forbearance and longsuffering of Elohim, the trained mind will immediately recognize that the his story of Yasharel is being rehearsed, most of which was not good to begin with. And in doing so, the question is still being posed to the Yahudim. Why must the Goyim continually be judged when they themselves are not moved towards repentance? 
It is a rhetorical one. In saying that the Yahudim were not knowing, Paul was calling them ignorant, which again was the his story of his people up until that point. And certainly by his own time, the Yahudim had interpreted Elohim's instructions in such a way as to create a man-made system of self-saving works rather than that of repentance. One must wonder how the following passage might have been interpreted by either party member, the classically trained Yahudim or the Goyim. So pay attention to, to how you could... This can swing both ways, depending on your worldview. This comes from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, 1 through 2. But you, O Elohim, are kind and true and patient, a merciful ruler of all that is. For if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are counted yours. The writer of Wisdom says of his readership that we are Elohims, even if we sin. But then goes on to say, we will not sin on the mere knowledge that we are counted as Elohims. How one interprets this passage is crucial, wouldn't you agree? There is certainly a difference between not being capable of sin on the basis of one's heritage as the people of Elohim, and worse, not being judged for one's sin because of it, or contrarily, choosing or desiring not to sin when recognizing his mercy and patience, among other character traits. Had the Yahudim gazed inwardly upon themselves and recognized their tendency for rebellion in the face of Elohim's righteousness, then they would have looked very differently upon the incoming Goyim, who craved a holy and set-apart relationship with Elohim for themselves. Nowhere does Paul ever state that the definition or standard of righteousness has changed, which again is the Torah. We've covered that. In time, the Christian converts were expected to become novices, just as the Yahudim were. The irony is that the Yahudim had misinterpreted the Torah and forsook any measure of repentance, which the Goyim were reportedly doing. In turn, and here is the tragedy, Christianity ultimately forsook the Torah on the basis of Jewish hypocrisy. Also, because the same sort of temple controllers who had already done away with the Torah anyhow to make way for the Babylonian Talmud, entered the ranks of Christianity, assigned themselves a seat on the throne, and muscled it away from them too. What I'm, that's a little wordy, but what I'm saying is, is that uh, the, the people who Yahushua Messiah criticized had done away with the Torah in order to create their man-made traditions of men, their man-made doctrines. And the people who muscled the Torah away from Christianity uh, did the same thing. And yet, understanding Paul's vision is of the utmost importance to deciphering his language use. At no other time in his story were so many goyim streaming into the Hebrew faith. Heaven's high priest, Yehusha HaMashiach, was responsible for that. Had the character of the Father truly been understood, then the goyim would have embraced his instructions in righteous living, and in return, the Yahudim would have given them patience and mercy to retain it. Continuing, hopefully this is being made clear to you guys, but understanding this worldview and what Paul was wrestling against, it, it you know, it, it's so, I think, important in understanding the fact that he's, you know, we, we call them one-way letters, right? Like we don't see the other side of the letter. Well, I hope I'm describing a lot of the other side of the letter of what's going on. Verse 5. But after your hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of Elohim. That right there is so controversial to this crowd. And uh, fighting words. The table continues to be turned on the Yahudim as Paul takes the sledgehammer to an age-old concept of theirs, that treasure may be stored up in heaven and completely inverts the idea so that wrath may be stored up instead. It seems the heart has no choice but to store up something for itself, riches or wrath, blessings or curses. That comes from Deuteronomy. Everything that Paul is inciting der derives from Torah territory. Consider. So this comes from Deuteronomy. And now, Yasharel, what does Yahuwah Elohika require of you? Elohika um, uh, means your Elohim. Yahuwah, your Elohim. But to fear Yahuwah Elohika, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahuwah Elohika with all your heart and with all your soul, to guard the commandments of Yahuwah and his statutes, which I command you this day for your good. Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens belongs to Yahuwah, your Elohim, and earth also, with all that therein is. Only Yahuwah had a delight in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For Yahuwah Elohim is Elohai Ha-Elohim and Adonai Ha-Adonim, the great El, the mighty, and the terrible, which regards not persons, nor takes reward. Fearing Yahuwah Elohika by walking in his ways and serving him with the entirety of one's heart and soul meant guarding his commandments. There's no other way around that. In order to do so, it would take an inward condition, a transfixed spiritual man marked not simply with a shaved penis, but a circumcised heart. It was always the desire of Elohim to circumcise the heart of his people, but as you probably, probably know by now, his people would just as often not have it, merely preferring the foreskin. Rather tragically, the unrepentant and self-entitled Yahudim was ambushing himself and claiming an inheritance in the world to come simply on the basis of his or her Jewishness, while simultaneously storing up wrath from Elohim in his refusal to circumcise a hard and impenitent heart. Seeing as how Romans was likely written in the 50s, that wrath was most certainly poured out on the Yahudim and Yerushalayim only one decade later. Think about that. Indeed, tragic. Can't say they weren't warned in advance. Yahusha gave them a good 40 years warning. Of course, Paul gives them 10, 15 years warning. Christians do the same thing today, you know. They claim to have a foot in the door while often snubbing the Torah. Obstinately so. As you can see, Yahuwah is not a respecter of persons. Nobody gets special privileges based merely upon their heritage, religion, denomination, doctrine, or even a faith statement. Yahuwah is seeking out guardians of his commandments from the inside rather than out. When speaking of the hard and impenitent heart, look at what else Paul was invoking. Yeah, the Torah. Just one chapter earlier in Deuteronomy, and we read the following. Deuteronomy chapter 9, 27 says, Remember your servants, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? 
that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, looked not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. The desire of Yahuwah Elohim was one in which the heart of his people might be softened, when in fact it has already been established that they had refused him as their circumciser. Not so with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. One might even argue that Abraham's heart was circumcised decades before his fleshly circumcision. And in fact, Paul does elsewhere in Galatians. He makes that argument. Obviously, Abraham was the first Hebrew. Many more were similarly crossing over into the Hebrew faith in Paul's own day, just as Abraham had, with the spiritual circumcision often transpiring before the physical. Why should the order of events necessarily change? If Abraham came into knowledge of Elohim later in life and then circumcised his household out of obedience to righteousness, then why should it be any different for those crossing over in Paul's generation? Verses 6-7 through Who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life? Anyone who claims Paul strictly taught the forgiveness and grace of Elohim will have to disagree with him here. In fact, should they do so, disagree and claim they can continue transgressing the Torah because Yahuwah Elohim will not hold their sins against them based upon their quote-unquote identity in Yahushua HaMashiach, or they would say Jesus Christ, then they ironically agree with his Yahudim audience, who likewise refuse to be transformed internally. Isn't that interesting how it works? Ultimately, both sides are arguing for the same thing. It seems like almost everybody really hates the Torah. We went over this last week, and the reason being is that the Torah is the face of the Father. To gaze into it is to see his face. To, it's like looking in a mirror, and it's, it's understanding his character. And I, I really think what this comes down to is that most people, you know, they claim they want to spend eternity with the Father. I really don't think they do. They like the, the fantasy of it you know, the, the, the fairy tale um, kind of perspective. But when it comes to the identity of Prince Charming, yeah, but they'd rather kind of create him in a different image. The message couldn't be made any more clear. Elihim will render to every man according to his deeds. Seems self-explanatory if you ask me. It's the opposite of storing up wrath in one's heart. Storing up treasures in heaven come by way of obedience to the faith through good works. Even Paul agrees with this. If you need that better defined, then Paul goes about doing it. Only those who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality will cross over into eternal life. Don't let those words escape you. Patient continuance speaks of faithfulness among the faithless. Well-doing of good works. Seeking means eternal life is not easily found. And in fact, the worldly system of man has cleverly created an, a, an alternative so as to hide the route. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has done this, but so has Protestantism. And if you guys know my views, of course, Protestantism is just a, a pet project of the Roman Catholic Church. And part, of the ad, part of that evidence is that they have uh, never left Sunday. That is something that the Roman Catholic Church created. By their authority. The narrow path is a quest which can only be discovered and then traveled through a lifetime of penitence. 
Seriously, what did Paul desire the Yahudim to repent of when claiming their hard and impenitent heart? Were they expected to toss out the Torah in favor of some new Christian ethics which he was promoting? Don't be ridiculous. If anything, Paul was making the case that a certain number of them never understood the Torah to begin with. While it is true that one would have to be ignorant to conclude that their man-made doctrine of works can bring about a right standing with Elohim, what can be said is true is that a right standing with Elohim always produces good works. Today, the Christian will quote Paul and say, I can do all things through Christ, except the Torah. I can't do that. Turns out, the person who refuses to do good works via the Torah is at odds with Elohim. Verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. You see how it's capitalized there. I didn't capitalize that. But obey unrighteousness, which is opposite of the capitalized truth. Indignation and wrath. Romans 2.8. We have already seen what the truth is. Capital T. And that is Torah. If righteousness involves an obedience to it, which is the same thing as conforming to the face of the Father, then what Paul says of disobedience is also deemed correct. Such a person is unrighteous. It's all coming around full circle. The Yahudim who feel they are saved because they are Yahudim is the same thing as Christians who feel they are saved because they are Christians. You can't be saved simply because of what you claim and still remain indignant. Indignation describes resentment. Such a person stands before the Father and is in contempt of court. That's a scary thought. They may claim to be righteous in their rebellion or obedient to the Father even, as Korah did, but, they're all, but all they're really doing is storing up wrath. That's a really frightening thought. Verses 9 through 10. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Yehudi first, and also of the other nations. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good, to the Yehudi first, and also to the other nations. The logic seems sound enough, if you ask me. If reward comes first to the Yehudi, based upon the goodness of their works, then the same can be applied to their wickedness. They too will receive the reward before everyone else. The Yahudim did receive the reward for their evil works in 70 AD, when playing the part of the whore. The beast that was Rome got there as a little later on down the road. It always comes to, the, to Elohim's people first and then to the unbeliever. The same can be said for rewards. If you have followed my commentary, my, excuse me, my commentary elsewhere, then you will be somewhat knowledgeable of my views that there were those among the Yahudim in the years really 66 to 70 AD, um, soft numbers, who received the rewards as well from Yehusha HaMashiach personally. Keep fighting against the obvious if you must, but it is so very difficult to read passages such as this one without the Torah as a guarding, guiding light. What are these good works and evils that Paul constantly speaks of, if not for obedience or disobedience to Yahuwah's commands? To the believing Yahudim reading Paul's letter, the conclusion couldn't be any more obvious. The doer of evil was the person who took up a doctrine of lawlessness rather than the law. Consider. What does this come from? This comes from Proverbs chapter 28. They that forsake the Torah praise the wicked. 
Hmm. But such as guard the Torah contend with them. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek Yahuwah understand all things. Better is the poor that walks in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Whoso keeps the Torah is a wise son, but he that is a companion of righteous men shames his father. He that by usury and unjust gain increases his substance, he shall gather it for him that, uh, that will pity the poor. He that turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Ouch. I should point out quickly, too, that if you're reading along with this and you see some spelling errors, they tend to be most mostly in the scripture passages. And that's because I purposely make a point of copying each of these by hand. Um, I don't copy and paste them because, you know, I really want to. It, it's it's how I memorize it, how I internalize it. When I type it out, I think about each word more than if I were just to copy and paste. Forsaking the Torah is equated to praising the wicked. However, one feels about these said individuals. I mean, think about this, guys. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but there, you can look at all the the, the justice-based truther uh, YouTube channels out there and everything, and they're just, you know, they're trying to expose the lies and going after the wicked, but they hate the Torah. They don't want anything to do with it. Well, according to Proverbs, let's read this again. They that forsake the Torah praise the wicked. They're ultimately praising the wicked. The very people they're condemning, they're condemning themselves. Starting to sound more and more like Paul's language, isn't it? Starting from the top, forsaking the Torah is equated to praising the wicked. However, one feels about the said individuals, even if they are judging the wicked, it doesn't mean that they themselves are not wicked. Yes, even the Yahudim were judging the wicked, as we have seen, and they too were wicked, which meant they were inadvertently praising the, them, the wicked. See how that works? Ultimately, the person who has junked the measuring rod of morality and declined any effort to conform to righteous thinking, thinking they can come up with their doctrines and theological statements, which might claim otherwise, but there is no righteousness apart from a submission to Yah's laws. If you don't like the word law, you could say will. Yahuwah's will. Elohim's will. It's to be obedient to his laws. And so they are measured among the wicked. The same passage goes on to claim that he who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. That same person can claim his prayers are answered and that he has received visions or dreams and that miracles are had through him and that above all else, his theology is amazing. I should have said amazing. But he is still an, an abomination if he has declared the Torah done away with. There is no way around that. And these people are a dime a dozen. We meet them everywhere. They come in and they say, well, Proof of my good standing before the Father is the fact that, you know, Jesus speaks to me each and every night, and I have all these dreams and visions, and I have, fulfilled, you know, spoken prophecies that have come true. I meet these people all the time. And according to this, it's like, nah, you, you turn away, you're here from hearing the Torah, like your prayer is an abomination. That's scripture. I, I didn't make that up. That comes straight from Proverbs. I have yet to hear the, the Christian church say we need to throw out the book of Proverbs. Maybe they should. Verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with Elohim. 
there it is. I have already quoted from Deuteronomy 10.17, and now Paul is sourcing it. In Yahuwah's eyes, there is no Yehudi nor Greek. What else could this mean except that they are all held accountable to the law, as well as the invisible qualities of Elohim which have been made known in creation? The Yahudim aren't given a get-out-of-jail-free card upon circumcision. If what Paul was actually saying uh, is that there were no Yehudi or Greek as it pertains to the 70 nations and the covenant, then he couldn't very well claim judgment would first befall one nation over the other. The Yahudim were still expected to be morally superior group, or I should say the morally superior group. The term used for respective persons, sometimes translated as partiality, uh, I threw in the Greek words there, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, derives its formation from the Tanakh. The Greek word is made up of two separate Greek words, which you can see there. I think they're called uh, pon and prosopon, which means face, and uh, the other, they're uh, uh, lambinian. Sorry, I butchered that. It means to take or lift. So face and to take or lift. Thus, to lift up the face, something which Yahuwah said he wouldn't do. This description is an exact match with Deuteronomy 10.17. In review, Yahuwah is no respecter of persons. He doesn't turn his face from acknowledging the sins of one people group just because Abraham was their biological father. That's, that's what Paul means when he says there's no Greek or Jew. If anything, they'll be the first to get theirs, the Yahudim. Likewise, do you really think he will lift up his face from those who claim a belief in Yahusha and yet refuse to be obedient to the very things which Messiah was obedient to? That's another scary thought. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the Torah will also perish without the Torah, and all who have sinned under the Torah will be judged by the Torah. Yes, that just happened. Paul invoked the Torah. He mentioned it by name and then committed to three more name drops, making four in total, just in one verse. You can't claim I'm making this stuff up now. I wasn't attempting to shove a Jewish worldview into a non-Jewish text either. The Torah was always in Paul's peripheral vision from the very beginning, seeing as how he was Yahudim and a member of the Parashim and all, especially when talking about the people committed with the truth in contrast with those who were given the invisible qualities of the Creator in nature. What he was doing then as well as hoping to clarify now, is showing how the revelation of Elohim is found in a far broader sphere than the Torah. Those who have received the revelation of the Torah and reject its message of faith will be judged accordingly, just as assuredly as those who have received a lesser revelation of Elohim. And that, that's important to note here. The, the invisible qualities in nature, that's the lesser revelation. That's we want more of a revelation of the Father, correct? I mean, I guess some people can just settle. They too will be held accountable to what they received, according to the lesser revelation. Therefore, nobody is without excuse, according to what they have been given. Kifa essentially claims the same thing, but manages, in my opinion, to say it better. In 2 Peter 2, 20 through 21, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Adonai and the Savior Yehusha HaMashiach, 
they are again entangled therein and overcome, the later end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. If it is worse for those who have come to know the way of righteousness, but then turn from the holy commandment committed to their trust, then that just goes to show that the Torah is the superior revelation of Elohim over nature. Before anyone argues and claims the Torah isn't being referred to by Kepha, then we might have forgotten already that Kepha was also Jewish. Dun, dun, dun. I know that is stating the obvious, but sometimes it needs to be said. Wouldn't you know it? Kepha appears to be quoting from Proverbs. Dun, dun, dun. Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment, oh, there it is, is a lamp and the Torah is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Anytime the writers of scripture are pointing us in the way or reminding us of the commandments, both of which lead towards righteousness rather than destruction, you can be certain that the Torah is being referenced rather than a cheap imitation or substitute. And by the way, it's interesting that the earlier, the earliest followers of Messiah, they referred to themselves as the way. I just now thought of that. I didn't put that in the commentary. Yes, even when Yahushua referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life, in Yochanan or John chapter 14, 6. On all three descriptions regarding himself, he was referring to the Torah. See for yourself. The way. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the Torah of Yahuwah. Uh, Psalms 119.1, so you can see right there. What is the way? It is the Torah of Yahuwah. That would also be the narrow path. The truth. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah is the truth. We went over that last week. Psalms 119, 142, and the life. And he said unto them, Set your hearts into all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to guard to do all the words of this Torah. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing, you shall prolong your days and land, whether you go over the Jordan to possess it, Deuteronomy 32, 46 to 47. The Torah is a revelation from the Most High, which leads us down the right path towards the way of truth and life, rather than in the wrong direction of lies and death. Makes sense. Yahushua, of course, was all of these things because he walked the path for us and furthermore showed us how to follow in his footsteps. Only sheep need apply. The goats will go in whatever direction they choose. And of course, the sheep know their master's voice, correct? And so clearly, the Torah is the greater revelation over nature, just as assuredly as the revelation of Yahushua HaMashiach is the good news of our high priest in heaven who fulfilled it. Verse 13. This is great. For not the hearers of the Torah are just before Elohim, but the doers of the Torah shall be justified. Um... <laughs> did Paul just clarify the definition of a justified person? I think he did. Yes, I read it again. But let's just read it again, just to be sure here tonight. For not the hearers of the Torah are just before Elohim, because a lot of people hear. And in fact, I remember going to church on Sunday and hearing the Torah read. Hmm. But the doers of the Torah shall be justified. Which is a little odd because I remember my pastor saying not to do it. Huh. 
he clarified the definition of a justified person. It couldn't be any more straightforward either. Paul is speaking of an obedient which, obedience which flows out of faith. Faith produces faithfulness. Those who hear the Torah and then shuns its commands, or worse, claims to believe but does nothing to walk it out, will not be justified before Elohim, our judge. Only those who commit to doing the Torah will be justified. Again, awkward, since Jewish Paul has apparently failed to get the memo that Roman Catholic and Protestant Paul has done away with the Torah in favor of the doctrines of men. And just so we're clear, Paul and Yaakov fall in perfect harmony here. I too had succumbed to the error of once believing the two epistles disagreed with one another. That would be uh, the epistle of James and, uh, and Paul's Romans. But if you will recall... What we have so far seen of Paul's entire theology agrees with what Yaakov commanded be taught in Acts 15. The believers were to come into the faith first and then be instructed in the righteousness of Torah over time as they gathered each Sabbath in the synagogues. I had someone with me just recently this week arguing, but no, it doesn't say anything about circumcision in Acts 15. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't say anything about circumcision? That's the Torah. It's in the Torah. Like, if you're going to follow his instructions over time, you're going to get to the part where it says to be circumcised. You know, just can't escape that part. It's there. It's not saying that you have to be circumcised your first week at all, you know, your first Sabbath, but eventually you'll get there and you'll want to follow that obedience if you love the Father. It's just something we all have to work out in our minds. Their faith was expected to lead them into faithfulness, like I just said. As I have already suggested, Paul's epistle to the Romans was written with that edict in mind, what Yaakov said in Acts 15. And anyways, here is where they agree. So here is uh, the actual words of Yaakov, one, chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Wow, that sounds familiar. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Now, quickly, I don't talk about this in here, uh, but if you were a part of our Yaakov study uh, a few months back when we went through the Hebrew James, it, it actually reads differently, and he's actually bringing forth a passage in Torah where it talked about the, the, the glass would actually be held by these women, sometimes young girls, who would stand in front of the tabernacle and they would actually uh, like wash their, their hands and their face in a basin and they would see the reflection there. And he's saying like, you're going, you're washing yourself, cleansing yourself of sins, going in the father's presence and you forget what you look like. You know, that's, that's actually what Yaakov is saying there. Yaakov claims those who are hearers only deceive themselves. The idea that such a person would forget his own image reminds us of what Paul has already stated, that the invisible attributes of Elohim are known even to those who haven't yet received the Torah, and still they reject them. And then we read the following from Yochanan, that's John again. He that says, I know him, and guards not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso guards his word, in him truly is the love of Elohim perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Uh, 1 John 2, 4-5 There is 
the truth, quote-unquote again, which we have already seen is the Torah. Do you see what Yochanan did there? He said the Torah is not in the person who guards not the commandments of Elohim. That's brilliant. It's that <laughs> Because the commandments and the Torah are the same thing, you see. Also, Yochanan straight up calls them liars. Those who claim to have Jesus, but obstinately refuses to keep the commandments. Man, that's dime a dozen, those people. I encounter those day in and out. Perhaps he accuses them to be too burdensome. I get that one a lot. The law is burdensome. Best not to try it. Further proof that he he's clinging to the wrong Jesus because Yahusha made it abundantly clear that his yoke was easy and his burden light. He wasn't referring to another law. He was referring to the Torah. It seems as though Paul, Yaakov, and Yochanan were wise to what would happen, and undoubtedly what had already started in their own lifetime. That entire libraries of books would be written, countless denominations would be erected, and sparkly theology gleaming with pigeon glitter would be instituted, all of which was purposed to have men believe as though they were honoring Elohim in not guarding his commands. How very tragic and also very satanic. All right, Romans verses 2, verses 14 through 15. For when the other nations which have not the Torah do by nature the things contained in the Torah, these having not the Torah are a Torah unto themselves, which show the work of the Torah written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Paul is still banging away at his nature argument. Those who have never received the Torah have the invisible character of Elohim in nature to go by. Most have corrupted that image, but apparently not everyone. Try not to overlook the fact that Paul is stating every possible righteous act can be found in the Torah given at Sinai. If a person who has never received the Torah uh, through what was offered at Sinai does by nature the things contained in the Torah, then that is evidence that the work of the Torah is written in their hearts. Interesting. Further evidence that the Torah far exceeds Sinai. For it is the very character of Elohim, whose image was, who, um, whose image we were created in, which also means it was always intended to be written on our hearts. A point not to be missed here is that most Christians have been programmed by their controllers into believing the lie that the Torah has been done away with, and yet a great many instinctively obey the Torah without knowing it, anyways. And I want to really make this point clear. I'm not just, you know coming down on just, you know, I don't want to demonize Christians. For example, and I think we all know people like this, they clothe the poor, they feed the hungry, care for the widows and the orphans, visit those in prison, refrain from sexual perversions, and so on. They are doers in many ways, rather than hearers only. That being said, many non-Christians do the same. They live a life which might indicate that elements of the Torah are present and accounted for on their hearts. Perhaps this is what Yahushua was talking about in uh, Matthew, Yahu, Matthew when, when stating the following. This comes from Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye bless, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you took me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Those things are all so important to Messiah. He says that over and over and over and over again. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Adonai, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come unto you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Amen, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. These righteous whom Yahushua spoke of understood they were doers of good, but apparently didn't know who Yahushua was or that it was fruits of the Torah which they were producing in their works. The passage goes on to speak of those who apparently knew Yahushua, or rather claimed to, and undoubtedly counted themselves among the righteous, and yet performed none of these works which the righteous did. What all of this goes to show is that loving Elohim by obeying the Torah is so much more complicated than what meets the eye. Many who make claims to Yahushua and the Torah refuse to obey either, whereas those who have been lied to by their controllers and thus remain in ignorance are still counted among the righteous based upon their actions, their works. Even if they say that you can't do anything for works or anything for salvation, yet they're, they produce some amazing fruits daily. Right, verse 16. In the day when Elohim shall judge the secrets of men by Yahushua HaMashiach according to my Bezorah. Again, Bezorah means gospel. That's what we just read in Matthew Yahu. Yahushua will be the final judge of our hearts, and many, a great many, will be surprised by the final results. If Messiah's words hold any merit, then the least will be first in his kingdom. We're talking about the person sitting on the back of the bus. Yahushua said the same thing elsewhere in Matzif Yahu. Everything is hidden, will be found out, and every secret will be made known. So again, on the day of judgment, many who seem close to Elohim will be judged far off. Whereas those who were deemed outcasts from the kingdom, according to the doctrines of men, will be judged nearest to the shepherd. It is my personal conclusion that the brunt of Paul's ministry, at least as his letters offer witness, was one in which he was constantly attempting to wrestle the blessings of Elohim away from the judgments of the Yahudim and back into the hands of the high priest Yahusha, at least in matters of the Torah. The parashim were claiming of the Christian converts that the outside of their cups was dirty, whereas Yahusha made it known that their inside was dirty. Better to be clean on the inside and have a heart for Yahuwah, like so many goim being actively grafted into Yasharel, and then let the Most High iron out the wrinkles. The outside would be made attractive in time. All right, verses 17 through 20. Behold, you are called a Yahudi, and rest in the Torah. There it is again. And make her boast of Elohim, and know his will. How could they know his will exactly? Oh, that's right, the Torah. And approve the things that are more, more excellent, being instructed out of what? The Torah. And are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which have the form of knowledge and of the truth in the Torah. Has it not come full circle yet? I think we've gone round and round and round. Seriously, are you, are you not entertained? 
If it hasn't been made known up until now, or you didn't believe me when claiming that the morally superior audience were the Yahudim, then the people whom he is addressing is made known, the Yehudi. He furthermore qualifies their moral superiority by claiming they have the Torah to rest in. Hmm. Sounds eerily familiar to the rest which might be found in Yahusha, but that's probably none of my business. Look at his descriptions of them. They know Elohim's will. Okay. What is Elohim's will but being obedient to the Torah? There is no other context given. The most simplest of deductive arguments will conclude that disobeying Torah is falling out of Elohim's will. The Yahudim furthermore approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed in, wait for it, the Torah. Dun, dun, dun. It is the Torah which makes them a guide of the blind, a light for those in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Hmm. On the flip of the coin, those who refuse the Torah by choosing blindness, darkness, or the life of a fool have no business being a teacher of babes. And once more, we see another confirmation that the truth is Torah. Can't say I'm reading too much into the cross-references, since even Paul made a habit of it. A lie, therefore, would be saying the truth is anything other than guarding the commands as found therein. And one more thing. Boasting in the Torah is not the error in case you were thinking that. I read no criticism in knowing the truth. The only criticism is in knowing the truth, the very heart of Elohim's character, and then refusing to repent of falling short of it. Verses 21 through 23. You, therefore, which teach another, teach you not yourself? You that preach a man should not steal, do you steal? You that say a man should not break woodlock, do you break woodlock? You that abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? You that make your boast of the Torah. Though breaking the Torah, do you dishonor, or through breaking the Torah, do you dishonor Elohim? Those of us coming to the truth of Torah ought to ask ourselves the same sort of retrospective questions as Paul did among his own people. Do we hold up the 613 laws of Elohim to shame the pagans? To show the church how very wrong they are in snubbing the Sabbath day and the like? While we ourselves prefer the darkened quarters of hypocrisy. Are we merely attempting to shame others? Hopefully the Torah is read for the purposes of leading us to repentance, the instructions in righteous living. If we tell others about the truth, it should only be in the hope of leading others towards the well water of retrospect and repentance, which we ourselves find rest in. The prideful need not apply. Unfortunately, the prideful are everywhere in Judaism, Christianity, and Torah, and the like. It should be noted here that three distinct sins are mentioned. Stealing, breaking wedlock, the same thing as adultery, and robbing temples of idols. Paul claims these things were being done by the goyim also, but mainly that the Yahudim were attempting to instruct the goyim on such matters while refraining from teaching themselves. We are not told who among the Yahudim were taking part in these hypocrisies, but it seems to be written in such a way that his own audience would have known. And most of his letters are written in that way. Since the brunt of Paul's argument is on spiritual versus physical matters, the matter of adultery may have been a spiritual one, on par with Yahushua's Sermon on the Mount. The adulterers may have completely disagreed with such an assessment, if indeed they had refrained from a physical act rather than a spiritual one. Anyways, 
Breaking the sanctity of marriage directs us to claims that Yahusha had earlier been making against the Yahudim in Matthew chapter 19. Their grounds for divorce were, according to Yahusha, a hardness of heart, which directs us right back to the circumcision issue again. Verse 24. For the name of Elohim is blasphemed among the nations because of you, as it is written. As it is written? Well, who wrote that? Somebody who hated the Torah? Well, <laughs> what is being said here, that obedience to the Torah is a blasphemy? Let me, let me, I got to rephrase that. I got to state that again. What is being said here? That obedience to the Torah is a blasphemy? I've actually heard that one. People have accused me of that. Oh, dear. Paul is quoting from Yasha Yahu 52.5. That's Isaiah. Turns out the disobedience of Yehuda to the commands entrusted to them is a familiar theme to the prophet. The problem with the Yahudim and Yeshayahu's time, as well as in Paul's, isn't the Torah. I'm not reading anywhere where the Torah is not the morally superior option or that it is celebrated as something to be forsaken. No, their problem is that they were expected to be guardians of the truth, but confused that introspective task with playing hall monitor. They were going about handing out citations to the recent flash flood of converts through Messiah, undoubtedly out of jealousy. I should have like put jealousy in bold because that it all comes down to jealousy. All of this. In turn, the Torah became an undesirable hypocrisy to the Goyim, even the Christians. That poor image trudges on to this very day. Christianity often sees the Torah as a curse and as an antagonist of salvation, when in fact, transgressing the law is the curse rather than the blessing, and righteousness through obedience is to be desired. At any rate, you can easily see why Yahushua HaMashiach was severed from the Torah according to Christian doctrine, because he himself was not a hypocrite, whereas the guardians of the commands were. Best to be like Messiah and not the hypocrites then. Hopefully you guys understood what I was saying by that. That Christian doctrine, in my opinion, severed Messiah from the Torah because he was not a hypocrite. And, and even Paul is pointing it out, that all these people obeying Torah are hypocrites. That's what Yahushua pointed out too. But, you know, the, 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 the opposite is not uh, attractive either, to be lawless. So we don't want to be either. Verses 25 through 26. For circumcision truly profits if you keep the Torah. But if you are a breaker of the Torah, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision guards the statutes of the Torah, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Oh boy, here we go. The anti-Torah crowd is declaring a victory for the team, despite everything already written and that which has yet to be read. Paul had to go and bring up circumcision again. And look. Circumcision has become uncircumcision. Sounds suspicious. He must have been against the Torah after all, making him a false prophet. We might as well sit around the campfire singing the Cindy Lauper song, I See Your True Colors. But hold on. I gave it a second and then a third read, and Paul says, Indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the Torah. So it is valuable then can't say it isn't. 
either it is or isn't a value. And since Paul just informed us that it is a value, then he would be bipolar to say it isn't. Something tells me the valuable part deserves repeating. Circumcision truly profits. Some versions say circumcision is a value. We forget easily, and so best to give it the highlighter treatment. Circumcision truly profits. Be sure not to miss the part about circumcision being profitable, truly. And just so there's no confusion a little later down the line, when the temptation to place circumcision at zero value is strong, I'll put it down in all caps. Circumcision truly profits. I almost I, I was very tempted here to get all like the shining on you guys and do like three or four pages of you know where he wrote like all work and no play makes was it Jack a dull boy or something like that? And just doing like two or three pages of just circumcision truly profits over and over and over again. But you guys get the point. It's simply not a value for everyone. Makes sense now that I think about it. Circumcision is a mark of Yahuwah and would be totally useless for anyone with no desire to be in the said covenant. Not that I have ever checked, but I wouldn't be in the least surprised if there were circumcised atheists. Obviously, it does hold value for. Uh, for somebody in the covenant, where obedience is concerned. Contrarily, though, the same can also be said of someone who uses circumcision as proof of his right standing before Elohim while remaining completely complacent with other instructions in righteousness. That's hypocrisy. Apparently, there were Yahudim going about as serial destroyers of people's marriages, <laughs> all the while believing Elohim would welcome them right into Abraham's bosom on the basis that their mommy and daddy had given them the schnip when only eight days old. How very adorable of them. It's all in the context. Quote, unquote, for indeed connects the last thought. Paul is talking to those who boast in Torah. We've gone over this already, and what is wrong with boasting in the truth? Nothing at all. What Paul is not saying is that circumcision is wrong or without merit. That would be reading something into the sentence that simply isn't there, probably out of wishful thinking. Contrarily, what, what good is boasting in peg leg Pete or one-eyed Willie if the owner of such an accessory isn't a doer of the word? They might as well bury themselves under the biggest and fattest and longest obelisk in the cemetery to prove their superiority. That is what Paul means when stating that one's mark has become as though they were never marked at all. It's obvious that he has in mind the believing goyim who keep Torah, though they have not been raised in its precepts, certainly not from the time they were eight days old. His entire argument is that real faith in Elohim produces works of obedience, but not necessarily in the order which the rabbis with the scissors would have it. Elohim is not obligated to bring anyone into his kingdom based upon the cut of their schnog when it is the circumcised heart that he is first and foremost after. Romans verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 27. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the Torah, judge you who with the scripture and circumcision do transgress the Torah? Notice how he said of nature there. That's really interesting because he, he was just hacking away at you know Yahu, uh, Elohim's revelation of himself, revealing of himself in nature, which is the lesser one, mind you. All right? So, so circumcision is the greater. I wish I wrote, I need to go back and change this here, this commentary. Circumcision is clearly the greater revelation. Uncircumcision is the lesser. It's by nature. 
Stunning picture, wouldn't you agree? It is the covenant member who will ultimately be judged by the goyim, more specifically, the covenant breaker. That much is apparent when he says they have the letter of the Torah but remain a transgressor. How is it possible to keep the letter but remain a transgressor exactly? Yahushua explained precisely how it worked when teaching the Beatitudes. And here's what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Uh, I'm just taking a, uh, a snippet from it. It's obviously a longer passage. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in the danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. That means, you know, you fool. But whoever shall say, uh, you fool, shall be in the danger of the fire of Gehenna, or Gehenna. So here is how it works. A man can keep the letter of the law and claim he has never murdered, but does he hold hatred in his heart? If so, then he has murdered. That is the deeper inner law within. It doesn't mean that a lack of hatred frees him to take up sadism and murder so long as he isn't angry with his victim as he does it. That would be ridiculous. You know, you could break the letter of the law just as long as you keep the spiritual. Nor does it free him to commit adultery so long as uh, he isn't lusting after her. If you can even form that image in your head, it's ridiculous. The spirit of the law recognizes the existence and the legitimacy of the letter of the law, but raises the bar. It is intended to place us all in a state of repentance. The letter of the law doesn't necessarily do that. Very few people have dressed up as their mother and taken a knife to a woman in the shower. That would be the letter of the law left alone to itself when the reality is that every man has exhibited internal anger towards his brother. And I, another thing I just thought of is that what he's doing is, is, so he's saying that, you know, just like Yahushua said, before you break the letter of the law, you break the, the spirit of the law. That always comes first. And so that's why Paul is reversing the order of circumcision. He's saying the spirit of the law comes first. The circumcised heart precedes the circumcised flesh, if that makes any sense. I hope it does. The transgressors of the spiritual Torah were those who believed the letter was good enough. They had another thing coming to them. In a way, Paul went over that already in verse 9. Judgment was coming to the Yehudi first and then to the other nations. But then notice what Paul doesn't say. What he doesn't say is that those who do away with the Torah will judge the circumcised. That would be ridiculous since they too are Torah transgressors, obviously. The qualifier is the person who keeps the Torah. In the end, the doer of Torah, even if he is of the Goyim nations, will be the one to judge the people of the covenant, supposing they have made their circumcision of no effect in claiming the letter but snubbing the spirit. In the final judgment, the question that will not be asked is, are you Jewish? No, the question will be, are you righteous? Verses 28 through 29. For he is not a Yehudi, which is one outwardly, neither is that, is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Yehudi, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, and the Ruach, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of Elohim. Verses 28 through 29. 
Somebody out there has already forgotten that circumcision truly profits for those who are obedient to Elohim's commands via the Torah. Also, I take back that other thing I had said. Only a moment ago, I had stated how the question at the final judgment would not be, are you Jewish? I was wrong. Wouldn't it be the first time, though? Turns out that may very well be a question asked. The difference is that the general definition of Jewishness is completely wrong. For Paul, a true Yahudim was one inwardly, not not outwardly, you know, genetically. Unless we forget, Yahushua held the same conviction. He called the temple controllers the sons of Satan, so not Jewish then, even though they were genetically. And though I haven't ungirded their loins, of the temple controllers that is, I'm under the impression that they nipped something off probably when they were eight days old. What good is circumcision to a son of Satan? A true descendant of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov couldn't possibly be a physical, outward nation then, but an inward child of Yasharel. It's a wheat and tares thing. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening through that. And um, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you guys have any questions, uh, disagreements, Anything you wanted to add, uh, now's a good time. I'm only going to give this a few minutes because I went about 20 minutes over what I really wanted to. And uh, I want to, Michael is patiently waiting. I want to get to the Aramaic Targum, but this is a good time to jump in. Anybody? I wanted to add a little something on the the circumcision there. And I just wanted to mention a verse from Corinthians. That Paul says the exact same thing that he says right here in Romans. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So in both accounts, he's literally saying the exact same thing. It's about keeping the commandments. You know, it's not about did you keep one of the commandments or, you know, did you keep some of them or did you think it was right? It's about whether or not you did it. Yeah, and I, I, guys, I have, while I was reading this live, I have, it really hit me at a deeper level. Like, I had a, a, a deeper revelation of this, that the circumcision issue, guys, this is what he's stressing. Exactly what Yahushua, like Yahushua says, if you commit physical adultery, you've already done it in your heart. Even if you haven't done it physically, if you do it in your heart, it, it's adultery. And it's the same thing with circumcision, guys, that a, a true circumcision on that same standard, it, it comes spiritually first on our heart. That's that's the whole point he's driving at. And it's something that clearly the Yahudim, they didn't accept the teachings of Messiah on uh, the, the spiritual uh, Torah. And, you know, they were obviously not going to accept Paul's either. And, okay, uh, Michael just dropped in here, Exodus 12 through 49, which, which he says links with Romans 2, and this is what it says. There is one Torah for the native-born, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. 100%. Absolutely. I need to add that in as well. It also links with that story in the Gospels where he's asking Yeshua, how do I attain eternal life? It's do the commands. It's, it's, that's how you do it. I forgot which verse it is. All right, guys. Well, you guys can have more time to think about it, and I want to encourage everybody to take notes. We're going to be moving on to Genesis now, and so afterwards we'll open it up again. You guys are free to comment on Genesis, but as well, if, if something you know stands out to you about uh, Romans chapter 2, then you can always bring that up 
um, as well. So I'm going to take a quick 30 second to minute break and we'll start this again. Thank you. 